The Church's One Foundation. What a thrilling lyric. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Well, welcome to another episode where we are going to be looking at the um, uh, normal Christian life as it has been so often defined since the Reformation out of Romans chapter 7. Let me say, first of all, that central to the mission at Encounter Recovery Ministries is the recovery of the whole counsel of God. And we do that by serving as faithful ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's a quote from 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. The believer's relationship to the Mosaic Law throughout church history has been a cause of great confusion, fear, and exploitation for the average believer. It's caused great confusion because the average Christian, even today, is still not clear under which covenant they are living. They live, therefore, in needless fear. And this is all because of the exploitation of either misguided or wicked teachers who have convoluted the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And by doing so, have robbed you, the average believer, of your spiritual birthright of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think with the exception of that great lie that believers remain under the blessing or curse of Malachi chapter 3 regarding the tithe. Few passages have caused uh, more confusion, more fear, and more spiritual depression than Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. So, it is our purpose now to look at this text and determine whether or not what Paul is describing here is the uh, normal Christian life, as it is set forth by many Protestant traditions today. And so let's begin by reading that text. Romans 7, 7 through 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. 
once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do, but what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. End quote. If you come from most any Protestant tradition, especially Lutheran or Reformed Calvinist, you will be taught that this is a description of the normal Christian life. The question is, is it? Is this really what Paul is speaking of here? Is this seemingly life of defeat and bondage, slavery to sin and despair really define the normal Christian life? And if not, then what is the normal Christian life? And how do we define that? 
Well, we don't want to get into competing theological systems here. We don't want to get into arguing theologians, debating theologians, or uh, the great argument between Calvinists and Arminians, commentaries, and other writings. What we really want to determine here is Paul's intended meaning of this text. We want to get into the mind of Paul as he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and discover for ourselves what it is he means by this. Because quite frankly, if this is the normal Christian life, we don't have much good news to offer the world. So let's discover what is the normal Christian life and what this text is really saying about that. Now we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about the background of this letter to the Romans. It's fascinating and it's good stuff, very important. Anytime you do any kind of extensive Bible study, you want to determine, first of all, the social and religious background the history of the letter itself. What compelled the author to write the letter in the first place? What was the theological controversy? What was the moral controversy? What was, what was happening socially and religiously that caused the apostle to write the letter? It's important to understand that these letters were not written by any of the apostles because they were just um, bored or it was just their job, or they were simply academics setting forth spiritual principles. No, they were very practical pastoral concerns that were being addressed in these letters. And the Romans, the letter to the Romans, is certainly no exception. Now, it turns out that after Pentecost, that day in which in response to Peter's preaching, 3,000 people responded and were baptized and saved. Many of those same people that were in Jerusalem that day were from Rome. And many of them were Jews. Some of them were Gentile converts to Judaism. And they came to an understanding that day by Peter's preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. When they left Jerusalem and returned to Rome, they formed churches, probably a network of house churches. And there was a good mixture of Gentile and Jewish heritages within this Christian community. And it was difficult, perhaps, to know what that meant. The church itself had to work out what it meant to be a church in which now not just exclusively Jews were uh, beneficiaries of salvation, but that the gospel, the gift of repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ, had been granted to the Gentiles. And the great question immediately became, well, how is it then that the Gentiles 
are included within the people of God. Is it through circumcision? Is it through the obedience to the Mosaic law? How is it? Do we begin by uh, bringing them into the covenant with Abraham through circumcision and then uh, teach them the uh, the regular observances of the law, the feast days, the holy days? What, what the Sabbath? What, what, how do we do this? How, how do we incorporate the Gentiles into the people of God? It appears that that is God's intention. But what is the marker? What are the markers? What are the identity markers that transition a Gentile pagan into faith in Jesus Christ and into the people of God? That was the great debate, the first great debate within church history. Now, so the churches churches are forming in, in Rome. Well, I believe it was, let me look here, I believe it was A.D. 46, A.D. 49, actually, that the Roman emperor uh, Claudius forced the, the Jews out of Rome. He expelled, according to Douglas Moo's great little theological survey in Romans, on page 10, he says, In that year, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. A Roman historian tells us he did so because the Jews were fighting over Christos, Christos, almost certainly a corruption of the name Christos, Christ. At one fell swoop, says Douglas Moo, therefore all the Jews in the Roman Christian community were forced to leave the city. All that was left were Gentiles who naturally took over positions of leadership in the community. By the time Paul wrote Romans, probably in A.D. 57, the Roman authorities had tacitly allowed Jews back into the city. But the Jewish Christians returned to a church that, in their absence, had become largely a Gentile institution. The situation was ripe for social tension. We can imagine the now dominant Gentiles moving further and further away from what they might perceive to be foolish remnants of Judaism, such as rules about food and holy days, while the returning Jewish Christians, keenly sensitive of their minority status, insist even more strongly on adherence to their ancestral customs. This is exactly the situation that Paul's warnings to the weak and the strong in Romans 14 and 15 presuppose. The point, then, is that the situation of the Roman church was a microcosm of the social and theological tensions that existed throughout the early church. So once again, let me reiterate the big question before the church was, how is it that the Gentiles are to be um, included in the people of God? Since the Reformation, we have put a lot of emphasis on individual salvation. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
God sent his son into the world so that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In the inf- in the uh, inf- emphasis, excuse me, the emphasis on um, individual salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in his finished work alone, was a tremendous recovery by the reformers. But in our zeal to emphasize the individual's salvation, we have lost our uh, greater and equal perspective that it is God's purpose to save a people. It is God's eternal purpose to create a people for his own glory who display his character in the world throughout creation and within their relationships to one another. It is God's purpose to have a people who stand as a shining city on a hill, a temple of his presence in the midst of this present evil age filled with pagan temples and pagan religion. So God has made his character and his goodness known through the church, through his people. So the great question again is, how is it that the people of God are now defined? If not by works of the law, then on what basis? We know it's by grace through faith in Christ. But what is the chief marker by which you can know that you individually and the corporate gathering that you belong to are indeed the people of God? While we know it isn't the Sabbath, we know it isn't circumcision, we know it isn't keeping the feast days, we know it isn't the works of the law. Or do we? (laughs) As I said in my introduction, for 2,000 years, this issue, you would think, was not settled. This issue, this question, had not been settled in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You would think that it hadn't been addressed by Paul and the other apostles in their writings. Because for 2,000 years, you would think that the great question as to what defines the people of God has been a reversion back to a Christian form of Judaism. Simply a Christianized form of Judaism with an ordained priesthood, a sacrificing priesthood, with the resurrection of a temple instead of the faith in the resurrection of the body of Christ himself, the physical body of Christ, we've resurrected basilicas, cathedrals, temples. Look at St. Peter's in Rome itself. What is that but a temple? Most people today, most average Christians, regard the sacred building in which they worship to be a temple. It's a place where God's presence is. There's a sense of reverence when we walk into a church. We take off our hats. 
we insist that the children behave. In some reform circles, you even come in in silence and sit quietly in the presence of God. And then, in addition to the return to the Levitical-like priesthood, the sacrificing priesthood, the elevated priesthood, men with powers that you don't possess as an average Christian, powers to offer sacrifice, powers to forgive sins. You also have this environment of a temple. And then in the liturgy, you have a routine of reading texts, primarily out of context, and often of reciting the Ten Commandments. I once had a Presbyterian clergyman uh, tell me over coffee that he uh, spent every morning reciting the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. This is how we get here. Instead, Instead of being New Covenant Christians, rejoicing in the gracious nature of the Gospel, we convolute the Old and the New Covenant in order to be an accommodation primarily in, in Europe to the state church. Well, back to our background. So, when the Jews came back to Rome, they found that the church had become primarily Gentile. And they wanted to continue, as Jews, to exercise some of their ethnic heritage, primarily in diet and keeping of Sabbaths. And while it wasn't necessary for salvation, it was part of their heritage, and they wanted to do it, and the Gentiles did not. And so, rather than accepting one another, as Paul encourages them to do in Romans fourteen fifteen, they divided. And the question then began to arise once again within the Jewish community, the Jewish Christian community, as to whether or not, or what was the basis that Gentiles could join their community, or should they just form their own Gentile community? So you had this division within the Christian church in Rome growing. Now, Paul hears of this, and such a notion, such a division, would have been abhorrent to the apostle. Paul made it very clear in Galatians, there is one gospel for one people of God. That there is, under that gospel, that is entered into by the hearing of the gospel, by grace, through faith, and by an affected by the Holy Spirit, there is no Jew or Gentile, male nor female, slave or free. There is one new creation, one new people of God. Circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Only a new creation, he says in Galatians 6. And then he refers to that new creation, that newly created people of God, who are marked out from the world, not by the works of the law, but by the presence of the Spirit within and among them. 
And this Paul refers to in Galatians 6 as the Israel of God. So the incredible mystery is that the Gentiles have been included in the salvation that the Messiah has come to bring. And that that salvation is a universal salvation, meaning it extends beyond the Jewish community into the Gentile community. And that is the free salvation based upon grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, as affected by the gift of the Spirit. So that now Jew and Gentile gather not as separate individuals, separate communities, but gather as one in Christ. And the unity of the body of Christ is the unity of the Spirit. So Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, to the churches in Rome, which are beginning to splinter into separate Jewish and Gentile communities. And he begins to address that issue throughout his letter, and he does it by setting forth the means by which both Jew and Gentile become the new people of God, and that is through the gospel. Through the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. So Paul is indeed teaching in the letter to the Romans the glorious doctrine of justification by faith apart from works, both for the individual and as the means by which the people of God become the people of God. And that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And whatever personal distinctions they may carry as a matter of personal preference, not to be and must never be allowed to be something that divides them. There should be tolerance and acceptance for each other. One person wants to honor one day above another and the other one doesn't. Each should settle that in their own mind. Some will eat meat that have been sacrificed to idols. Others won't, and they should settle that in their own mind. It ought not be a point of division. So Paul is setting forth this glorious doctrine of the justification by faith, apart from works, so that both Jewish community and the Gentile community will return into becoming one community once again. There will be a, a, a one people of God. That is Paul's purpose. The one people of God. Now, let me make sure that you understand what I'm saying here by reading to you Paul's point of that in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll do a little exegesis here. Exegesis meaning we depart from our text to see where else in the scripture these things are spoken of. That's how we establish good doctrine. Where is it spoken of? How does scripture itself interpret scripture? And to do that, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 11, and we'll read through verse 22. There Paul says, quote, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Let me read that last verse because it's very, very important to our study. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Let that settle in for a moment. God's purpose in Christ was to create in himself one new humanity. Not a Jewish humanity, not a Gentile humanity, but a new humanity after the image and model of the resurrected Christ. Thus making peace. Now listen closely because he uses the word one repeatedly. One new humanity, in verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you, you Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The great mystery is that God has included the Gentiles in his promise of salvation to Israel. And so we have now a new definition of Israel, a a different understanding of Israel. Who is Israel? We can 
get some in sense of that in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, where Paul says, A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans setting forth the fact that Jew and Gentile both are equally disadvantaged because of sin. Those under the law are no better off than those without the law. That sin has caused them both to be alienated from God. And while there's some advantages to being a Jew, there is no separate plan of salvation. God has one purpose in Christ, and that is to bring all things together in Christ. So that gives you the historical and some of the theological background for our study here. Paul is addressing in his letter the Christians in Rome but he's speaking to them as a separated community that he's giving the very important, thorough lesson, of the, the, a theological lesson, the principle, that it is in the gospel that there is unity. There is one people of God and that they are to now accept one another. They are not to form separate communities. Now, on a practical, contemporary basis, what does this mean to those who consider themselves to be, quote-unquote, Messianic Jews? What does this say today, already, in application of our lesson, to those who consider themselves to be uh, members of the Hebrew Roots Movement or some other Zionistic Roots Movement? What does this say to the Gentile pastors who impose the Mosaic law upon their churches? First of all, there are no such thing as Gentile pastors. There are no such thing as Jewish pastors. What does this say to the Christian television networks that feature unbelieving Jewish rabbis on their programming as a regular basis? and represent the Jewish rabbis as being some kind of a elevated stance, an elevated place with God that Gentile Christians are not. What, what is this saying to them today? It says that they are doing the precise same thing that Paul is addressing in this letter to the Romans. That there is no such thing as a Jewish Christian. There is no such thing as a Gentile Christian. There's only one new man, 
one new race of people in Jesus Christ. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 2. If you need to, to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, and read it, and read it again. And go into chapter 3 too, because Paul continues to talk about the mystery, and that how he was appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles, to bring them in to who is Israel. We just learned that a Jew is one who is inwardly, not outwardly. We understand from Galatians chapter 6 that the Israel of God has nothing to do with circumcision or with um, ethnic heritage. From now on, he says in verse 17 of chapter 6 of Galatians, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. See, these, what was happening is the, the Jewish Christians after Pentecost were insisting that Gentile Christians must become Jews in order to experience the full benefits of their Messiah and to stay at fine place and remain within the people of God. And, of course, this sent Paul ballistic because it was a, a, a um, perversion of the gospel. You might recall in Galatians chapter 1, he gives a double apostolic curse upon those who would convolute the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and set standards for entrance into the people of God that God himself does not set. How else does this show up today? I can tell you it shows up most regularly in the teaching on tithing. Not only is this an exploitation of your finances, it's a exploitation and a perversion of the gospel. You are not under Malachi 3. You are not under the blessing and curse of Malachi 3. You're not under the Mosaic law. The tithe was a uh, like a, a national tax upon the theocracy of ancient Israel to support the temple, to support the Levites, to support the benevolence of the ministry of the temple. is never intended to transfer into the church. And yet, untold numbers of Christians suffer and labor under the bondage of that teaching today. And there is no end to the charlatans who will tell you that Malachi chapter 3 and the blessing and the curse involved in tithing there applies to the Christian today. It's not about money. It's about a perversion of the gospel. Of course it's about money in as much as they want 10% of your gross income. But ultimately, what you're experiencing is a perversion of the gospel. What you're experiencing on a very practical basis from these false teachers who exploit your finances by insisting that you give them 10% of your gross income or somehow you're disobeying God, that you're opening up your finances to demons, that you are somehow opening up your finances to the great devourer. 
What you're experiencing there is exactly what Paul is addressing here in Romans. The false standard by which you are named and maintain your position in the people of God. In this case, by tithing. If you don't tithe, then, you know, you're not, you're really not members of the people of God. And it never ceases from there. There are churches who now teach that you must keep Sunday as the Sabbath. And if you don't, then you're, you're a suspect. I know Presbyterian churches who refer to the people who return on Sunday night for a second service on the Sabbath, quote-unquote, as the faithful. Sunday morning are just regular old church goers. The Sunday night crowd, well, those are the faithful. They must be among the elect. So there's another standard that gets set up that God does not set. See, these people confess that the sufficiency of Christ is all-sufficient, and then on the other side of their mouth, they set up standards like Sabbath-keeping, tithing. Some even today set up dietary laws that you must have drink, take wine in the communion. This is both uh, hard and soft legalism. Hard legalism says you must do these things to be saved. Soft legalism says you must do these things to stay saved. And neither one of them have any place in the gospel. Neither one of those either hard or soft legalistic teachings have anything to do with the gospel. And if you're laboring under it today, I invite you to come back, continue to listen to this series, and get yourself free. Learn this thing thoroughly. Understand this textually and contextually. Take the lessons that were given here from the scripture and apply it to yourself and then go help other people who are laboring under the Mosaic law as Christians. Gordon Fee once said, once said, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, that the average Christian believes that they are saved by grace through faith conceptually. But experientially, the average Christian lives as though they're under law. And that's one of the things that it is my personal mission, is to be one voice speaking not only against that, but for the truth of the gospel. The gospel of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, and the spirit gives life. So Paul says in Galatians 6.17, excuse me, let me back up, Galatians 6.16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. And then I told you earlier in this, in this uh, session, he says in Ephesians 4.1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Become completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, 
when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The unity that we so long for exists. And it's the unity of the Spirit. It's not the unity of uh, denominational distinctions. It is the unity of the Spirit. Paul says again in Romans chapter 8, if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they are not a Christian. The chief marker as to whether or not you are a member of the people of God today is no longer the works of the law, but the gift of the Spirit. Well, we're going to pause there. Next time we're together, we will move beyond this background that I've shared with you today. I think, I hope this has been helpful. I think it's very necessary for you to grasp. And then we'll get into the context. We're going to look at the immediate context for Romans 7, 7 through 25. And then the greater context of Romans 6, 7, and 8 together as one unit. And I am so excited <laughs> about what we are going to conclude there. What the scripture brings to us in the mind of Paul. As he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. And to bring to you the good news of what the normal Christian life really is. And I can tell you, it involves resurrection power. It involves living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. It involves a life free from the old fear of approaching God on the basis of law but instead approaching him in the spirit of his Son, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. So that we have a mind set on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace. Well, until then, may the Lord preserve you and keep you in his goodness and his strength. Amen.